Well, I invite you to open your Bibles uh, with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll be looking at the first uh, six verses on the submission of wives to their husbands. 1 Peter chapter 3, and I'll start reading in verse 1. So Peter writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, In the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that if even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, the former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Uh, before I start, I got to get my, I've, I don't have my uh, <laughs> my slide up here. You get so dependent on all this technology and when it doesn't work right, it's... Um, let me, uh, as we begin looking at this uh, passage, there it is, I got it. Thank you, Lord. Uh, the submission of wives to their husbands is not fashionable in today's world. It's the teaching of Scripture and it's been the universal agreement of the church up until the more recent rise of the feminist movement. Feminism has tried to really lay an axe at the root of this teaching, claiming that it is a result of male chauvinism and expresses tyranny over women. They say the teachings of the Bible are oppressive to women and only reflect the temporal, cultural customs of the day, and that they are not binding on us today. Of course, there are abuses. We're all sinners. Husbands are sinners. Wives are sinners. But the authority structure stated here is biblical and it's sound. God established authority structures really throughout society. Everyone must submit to someone else at one level or another. Citizens are to submit to their government. Slaves back in the day were to submit to their masters. Employees to employers. Children to their parents. And wives to their husbands. And within the church, of course, we all submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. Everyone has to submit to someone. Every human institution must have leadership in order to operate effectively. 
Nations have rulers. Cities have police and judges. Companies have a president. Football teams have a quarterback. Military has their generals. And that God designed it that way, that there be structures of authority at every level of our society. To abandon authority structures leads to chaos and anarchy. So when we look at this passage, and Peter in verse 1 says, Wives, be submissive to your own husbands. This is something that you find in several places of of Scripture. This is not just the isolated uh, passage here. Notice uh, what Peter is is saying uh, when he says in verse 1, You wives, be submissive to your own husbands. You don't have to be submissive to somebody else's husband, but you are to be submissive to your own husband. And again, this is something that Paul also emphasized in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, He Himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their own husbands in everything. Later on in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul makes the point of emphasizing that the marriage relationship reflects a mystery. And it's a mystery that is, that is supposed to reflect the picture of Christ's relationship to His church. And that's very important to, 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 to get an understanding of. The wife is to model the church as the church is in submission to Christ So the wife models that in her submission to her husband. And notice Paul says at the end of this, in verse 24, in everything. Now obviously that's a qualified everything because we know in the other relationships of authority structures that if an authority tells someone to disobey God, obviously they obey the highest authority which is Jesus Christ. R.C. Sproul made this point well when he said a wife must disobey her husband when he commands her to do something God forbids or forbids her to do something God commands. So obviously, you're to be submit in everything, but unless the husband is requiring them to do something contrary to the Word of God. And even then, when they have to disobey, they should do it with a submissive, loving, gentle uh, attitude as well. There are several things about submission that I want to kind of deal with. A lot of the argument today is that, well, the submission of wives is just based on the culture of the first century. And we're in a different culture, so it really doesn't apply. But you don't see that from the Scriptures. That's, That's not what Wives' submission to their husbands is based upon, it's not based upon culture. For example, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, when Paul is saying that wives should not teach or exercise authority over men within the church, he bases it on the order of creation because Adam was created first. That has nothing to do with culture, that's the order of creation. The wife was created to be the helpmate to the, to the man, 
But the man was created first. Adam was created first. And then he indicates that Eve sinned first. So there's the order of sin. Now, Adam's sin was worse because he was the covenant head and his sin actually brought the curse down upon us. But Eve was deceived by Satan. Adam, I don't know what was going on with Adam. He wasn't apparently deceived. He just did it willfully. So, I mean, it's a, there's almost a greater blame on Adam. But the order of sin is also significant and that's not culturally based. As we just saw back in Ephesians 5, the submission of wives is patterned upon Christ's relationship to the church. That's not culturally based at all either. Christ and the church, that's a permanent eternal relationship. That doesn't change with changing cultures. So again, the submission of the wife is patterned after Christ's relationship to the church. And again, it's not a cultural thing at all. And then also, we can see that within this uh, concept of submission to a higher authority, in, in the sense of marriage, it's not degrading for a wife to be submissive to her husband. It's not degrading. Because Christ was also submissive to His Father. And this is something that uh, is very, very important to see as well. I'll get back into that just, just in a moment. So the next point I want to emphasize, kind of leading into that, is that submission of wives is not saying they're inferior to their husbands. And this is another thing that's a complaint against this teaching of Scripture well, if you, if you say that wives are to be submissive to their husbands, then you're saying they're inferior. And that is not what the Bible teaches at all. Again, both the man and the woman share the image of God. They're equal in that. We find in uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it says, God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. So there's equality in sharing the image of God. So when you say that the role of being submissive makes a woman unequal, it doesn't. They're, they both share the image of God. Secondly, the Bible clearly teaches that men and women are equal in Christ. Galatians 3.28 There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So in Christ we are equal. Now that doesn't mean we we don't have different roles because we do. But there is an equality in Christ that makes men and women equal in Christ in our relationship uh, to Christ. And also later on in uh, 1 Peter 3 verse 7 when Peter turns his his gaze on the husband. So guys, uh, we're coming up next week. He'll tell the husbands that their wives are fellow heirs of the grace of life. They are fellow heirs. So there's equality in that regard as well. So in all of this, obviously to be in a submissive role does not mean that the woman, the wife is inferior 
to the husband. We're equal in Christ, but we do have different roles that we play. And again, as I said a while ago, the submissive role is not degrading because Jesus Christ, as I've already said, came in a submissive role to do the will of His Father. Now notice with Christ there's equality and there's subordination. The Son of God is equal to God the Father and God the Holy Spirit and all the divine attributes. They all fully, equally share in all of the glory, the attributes, the eternal perfections of the Godhead. So there is equality within the, within the Trinity. But at the same time, the Son of God, equal to the Father in eternal glory in the very essence of His divine nature, nevertheless, assume the role of being submissive and subordinate to His Father to carry out the plan of redemption. So when He came down to, to be a man, He came down to subordinate Himself to the will of the Father. This is what Jesus said in John 6.38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Now, is it degrading for Jesus to be submissive to the will of His Father? Of course not. He's the eternal Son of God. It's not degrading to be submissive to a higher authority at all. And even in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul said when Christ comes back and He defeats all of His enemies and establishes His eternal kingdom and glory, it says, when all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself also will be subjected to the One who subjected all things to Him, so that God may be all in all. So throughout all eternity, the Son of God in His messianic redemptive role will be subjected to the Father. So if that's the case, how can you say that to be submissive is degrading? And this is the glory of it for wives and particularly in, in this relationship with, with your husband because it is your glory and duty as well to reflect the very pristine character of Jesus Christ, the very humility, the glory that makes Him our Savior that moved Him to come and subordinate Himself to the will of the Father so that He could accomplish our salvation on the cross. And wives are to imitate the Lord Jesus Christ and His relationship to the Father within the Godhead. How can that be degrading? Because it's the role of the wife to imitate Jesus Christ in His very relationship with the Father. That's incredible. That is, a, that is a reflection, a position that is honorable and brings glory to God. So submission is not an ugly, abusive, tyrannical concept invented by Satan. Wives have the honor of imitating Christ and His relationship with the Father. And yes, sin complicates all of this. Because again, husbands are sinners, wives are sinners. 
But the role of being subordinate is adorned with the glory of Jesus Christ, so don't despise it. Christ didn't despise becoming submissive to the will of His Father. It's not something to look down upon. Now in a healthy marriage, of course, there's a lot of communication, feedback, sharing between the husband and wife. The wife is communicating her, her insights, her opinion, her wisdom, her perspective, her advice, her preferences, contributing in the areas where she knows more or has a more wisdom and knowledge than her husband does. And a wise husband always wants to hear that and, and evaluates it and takes it into consideration and heart. As part of this communication, as part of what it means to become one flesh. So that husbands want their wives' input. But she is there to be his helpmate. So she needs to contribute in this way. But in the final analysis, if there's a disagreement between the husband and the wife, the husband has the final say as the head and as the ultimate authority, and the wife should submit to that. If it was a foolish decision, then God will hold the husband responsible. Because he is the head, he's the leader of the family. So he has the final word. Most decisions, of course, are worked out and you, there's a, you come out to a, a mutual agreement. But in those areas where there is an agreement, then the husband has that responsibility. Obviously, the role of submission gives no excuse whatsoever for wife abuse. I agree with R.C. Sproul. I think he said if a, if a husband ever physically abused his wife, he ought to be thrown in jail. So it doesn't give the husband in any way the right to abuse his wife. Matter of fact, when you look at the role of the husband, you get an entirely different picture from that. The wife is not to be a doormat. The husband is also under the authority of Christ and he has responsibilities and duties that Christ will hold him accountable to as well. So all wives are to submit to their husbands. That's a general principle that we find in Scripture. But Peter has a specific situation in mind that he is uh, addressing in part because some of those wives will have husbands that are not believers. And that's really what he's focusing somewhat on in verse 1. The general principle is there, but you also find that Peter's addressing the, the response of wives when they're living with disobedient husbands. Now this can apply to a believing husband that's disobedient, but it's primarily an unbeliever that's in view. So in verse 1 he says, In the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the Word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. So Peter is addressing this situation that some husbands are unbelievers. And Christian wives may have unbelieving husbands. And he's addressing this because it may have come up within some of the churches that a wife gets converted, her husband doesn't, 
And she starts thinking, well, I'm a Christian now. My husband is not a believer, so I don't have to submit to him. I am free in Christ. I'll follow Christ, but I don't have to submit to my unbelieving husband. And Peter is quite clear, yes, it still applies within the marriage relationship. Of course, again, the the abuse issue, that, that shouldn't be there. But they do have to submit to an unbelieving husband. But notice what he says about them. They are disobedient to the Word. This word disobedient, Peter uses four times in this letter. And it always refers to unbelievers. So we're talking basically about an unbelieving pagan husband. They are disobedient to the Word. That is, they're disobedient to the Gospel. And the word disobedient, this particular word, suggests they are antagonistic and actively opposed to the Christian faith. So that would create a a very difficult situation for the Christian wife. Especially when you realize that back in the, uh, the first century, the social status of the wife and the Roman provinces could be challenging because it was expected that the wife would embrace the gods of her husband. That was kind of the norm back then. So whenever a wife embraced a new religion, and in this case they came to faith in Jesus Christ, and her husband did not, then that would complicate her marriage relationship and possibly open her up for abuse. And that, I think, is possibly what Peter is considering in part in this, in this verse. So what does he say to the wives in this case? He says, be submissive, that they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. So he says, number one, you try to win them. You win them. So the Christian wife's desire and heart is to win her husband. Now what does that mean to win? Well, Paul uses this same word in 1 Corinthians 9 many times of winning someone to faith in Jesus Christ. For example, in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 20, he says, To the Jews I became a Jew so that I might win Jews. That is, win them to faith. Bring them into the kingdom of God. Win them spiritually. Win them with the gospel. He he goes on to say, to those who are under the law, as under the law, though not myself being under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. I become all things to all men, so that by all means I might save some. So winning them is bringing them into salvation. I think that's what Peter means here. He wants the believing wife to live in such a way that will hopefully end in the conversion of her pagan husband. So that her submission becomes part of her mission to evangelize and live out the gospel in front of this pagan husband so that Lord willing, he might come to faith in Christ. So here the submission plays into the mission of evangelizing uh, her lost husband. 
So notice what he goes on to say, to win them without a word. Now Peter is not telling the wife she can never talk to her unbelieving husband. That's not what he means by this. There's a context you have to consider here. Certainly, I would assume this Christian woman had shared the Gospel with her lost husband many times. Probably pleaded with him to come to faith in Jesus Christ for salvation all to no avail. So she had probably talked with him, shared the, the truth of the Gospel with him, but he's turned a deaf, deaf ear to it. So Peter, I think, in this, I, this notion would be telling these wives, look, win them without a word, but rather by your behavior. So without a word, again, he's not saying you've got to put duct tape over your mouth and you can't say anything to your unbelieving husband. Uh, that's a wooden literalism. That's not what Peter means by this. I think really what he's saying is, is the idea that win them without a word, don't let your words continue to press upon them uh, the gospel in such a way that you get a, a negative or, or an irritation response from your husband that might do you harm. I think he's saying to the wife, don't nag your husband. Don't badger him with their need for salvation and constantly exhorting him to come to faith in Christ. Because if he's disobedient to the Word, then he may retaliate negatively against you and you may suffer and be harmed by it. I think that's the idea. This would be similar to Proverbs 21 verse 9 that says, it's better to live in the corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. And so what he's encouraging these wives married to unbelievers, be careful they're already disobedient. They're already antagonistic to the Gospel. So don't, don't provoke them to do something violent against you. So win them without a word. Again, not, not the absolute silence. You can never speak to them. But rather by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. So let your behavior before them be chaste and respectful. Instead of arguing with your husband all the time to become a Christian, that he needs to repent of his sins, she'll be more effective by quietly living out its saving power before him as a godly example of the transforming grace of Christ in her life. Let him see that. And that will be more effective than continually exhorting him to repent, by which he might respond very negatively. Chaste behavior is pure and holy. Respectful behavior. This, this uh, actually, it's fear is the word. And it can either be the idea of a respectful behavior towards your unbelieving husband. Be respectful towards Him. Or it could be live out your life in the fear of God. God is not in there, but it, sometimes Peter uses it that way. So it could be with, with fear, the reverential fear of God in your heart. But let it be your behavior. So if the husband has rejected the Gospel, then the wife should live out the Gospel daily 
hoping that God would use it in his conversion. And notice it's as the husband observes your chaste and respectful behavior. He's watching the wife. This Christian wife who's embraced this this new religion of Christianity and she follows Jesus Christ. I wonder how that's going to affect the way she lives. And as he observes her godly behavior in the providence of God, that could be used to soften his heart and bring him to faith in Christ. The importance of this observation, Peter has already emphasized back in chapter 2, verse 12, when he said to his readers in general, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Well, now he's taking that general exhortation and applying it to these women these christian wives very similar ideas similar principles similar wisdom that's now applied to them live out the gospel in front of them let them see that and then from there he moves into verse 13 and 14 and focuses on the priority of the inner person over the outer person. So he says then in verse 3, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses. Now Peter is not prohibiting any kind of outward adornment for the wife. He's not saying, wives, you can't fix your hair. Can't ever wear any jewelry of any kind, not even a wedding ring. If so, the prohibition goes way too far because let me tell you what Peter literally says in verse 3. He literally says, don't adorn yourself externally by braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on clothes. Well, obviously, he's not telling women, don't put on clothes. But what's he doing? He's stating something in a very categorical way to make a point by way of comparison. And that's the point that he's making. It's, it's really more of a relative statement. Peter is not prohibiting wives from wearing clothes. So all the commentaries I checked are in agreement that this is a relative statement and the New American Standard that included the word merely, notice it's in italics. It's not in the actual Greek, but it's an appropriate clarification of Peter's meaning. It's interesting, Jesus used this same communication uh, style. Notice what Jesus said in John 6.27 and, and other places, but here's one example. Jesus told the crowd, do not work for food which perishes, but for food which endures to eternal life. Okay, you're going to take this literally. Do not work for food which perishes. So everybody needs to quit your job, go on food stamps, beg on the street corner. Is that what Jesus is saying? Do not work for perishable food. So you got to quit your job. Is that what he's saying? No, that's not what he's saying at all. 
But he's using that same kind of language where he states something almost as carte blanche, no exceptions, but he doesn't mean that. He's talking about comparative-wise. In other words, what he's saying here is don't put all your energy and all your focus on your job, earning physical food for your body, and neglect the more important spiritual food for your soul, your relationship with the Lord. That's what Christ is saying. I'm not telling everybody to go out and quit your job and don't work for food which perishes. So you've got to understand the different ways they communicated. And, and Peter is saying the same thing about these kinds of clothes. R.C. Sproul says, Peter is telling women not to be caught up in an ostentatious display of beauty because the most beautiful thing about them is their soul. Thomas Schreiner professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, reflects the opinion of most of the commentators, all of them that I read. He said, Peter did not prohibit women from wearing their hair nicely or from wearing any jewelry at all. He prohibited them from spending an excessive amount of money on their outward adornment or from wearing clothes that are seductive. So basically what Peter is saying to these Christian wives, look, be modest. Don't spend excessive amounts of money on your outward adornment thinking that your outward beauty is the most important thing about you. It's not. The inner person is more important than the outer. Don't be like the world that focuses on external adornment to flaunt their wealth as some of them did back in the first century. Some of the wealthy women uh, who had a lot of money would go out in public and they would would flaunt their wealth by very gaudy hairstyles, by ostentatious display of wealth in the clothes they wore that were extravagant, or by their immodesty or their self-centered displays and focus on outward beauty. That that was the most important thing to them. Peter is saying, don't imitate the world like that. And in this regard, Peter is very countercultural, Because that was the dominant worldly notion that outward beauty was all, well, beauty was all understood in terms of outward adornment. So Peter is really saying, don't, don't buy into that. Don't be a slave to worldly fashion. That you won't win your unbelieving husband to whatever extent they're still in Peter's mind. Because they may get the wrong idea that you know you think that the outward person is the most important thing. No. Nothing wrong with looking nice and dressing nice. Just don't make it an idol. Don't go to the excesses that you see going on in the world. Don't be a slave to worldly fashion. So this may apply, applies in general to just dress in general for Christian women. But uh, it also implies something that uh, may also be helpful in terms of if the husband is an unbeliever. So from there, Peter then goes to verse 4. And now he's contrasting the over-excessive, extravagant, gaudy emphasis on the external dress and looks 
with what God really prizes. So in verse 4 he says, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. So it's the hidden person of the heart. That's more more important than the outer visible person of the body. So Peter's just saying to these Christian wives, look, if you're trying to influence your unbelieving husband or if you're just trying to live godly lives, don't put all the focus on the outer person. The inner person is more important. It's the hidden person of the heart. So this reflects the innermost character that God in His grace for these Christian wives has implanted a spiritual beauty on the inside of them. Cultivate that. It's far more important than the outward looks. Remember when uh, the Lord sent Samuel to anoint the replacement for King Saul who had disqualified himself and had to be removed. And so Samuel was sent to Jesse to anoint one of his sons. He didn't know which one. So Jesse started parading all of his sons in front of him. And the first one came forward. His name was Eliab. And God told Samuel, He said, don't look at his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at what? The heart. So that's more important to God is the heart. So what does He counsel these Christian women to do? Well, focus on the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. A gentle and a quiet spirit is what Peter exhorts these wives to manifest in their homes. Gentle means humble, considerate, meek. This is a word that not only applies to Christian wives, it's one of the fruits of the Spirit. Gentleness is. So really it's something that all believers should manifest to one degree or another. Christ also employed it in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek. That's the same word. Blessed are the gentle. So again, it's something, it's a godly characteristic because it's one of the characteristics of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 11.29, Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. So again, the Christian wives are encouraged to reflect and imitate the Lord Jesus Christ and His gentleness. And again, that's something that all believers should actually strive to cultivate. Quiet, a quiet spirit. Not loud, not boisterous. Not causing trouble, creating turmoil. So wives don't yell, scream, and throw dishes at your husband even if they deserve it. Show that quiet spirit. 
The quietness really is the idea of a peaceful heart. It's a, it's a heart that's free from turbulence and angst. There's lots of conflicts that come up in marriages. There's issues where there's disagreement. There's offenses that take place between one and the other. And Peter is exhorting these Christian women to strive to be gentle and quiet in their response. Be like the eye in the hurricane. And if all the chaos is going around, find your trust in the Lord. Find your peace in the Lord so that you don't respond in anger and bitterness and those kinds of responses. That's what he's encouraging them to do. See, this can attract husbands to the Gospel where nagging words can all oftentimes irritate them and drive them farther away. So let them observe your godly behavior. And this gentle and quiet spirit is imperishable. Um, you know, the exact understanding of what Peter is referring to here is a bit challenging, but a gentle and quiet spirit are described as imperishable possibly because they're produced by the imperishable Holy Spirit, those who have that characteristic also indicate they have a title to the imperishable inheritance that Peter has already talked about in chapter 1. So it's an imperishable quality. It's something that will last forever. Why? Because it reflects Christ within our heart. And then Peter says it's precious in the sight of God. God sees that as a great worth. So it's not one's clothes that God counts as precious, but the godly spirit that wears them. That's what's precious in His sight. So the gentle and quiet spirit is like a spiritual gem in the eyes of God. Well, and then quickly, he uh, begins to encourage them with godly examples of women in the past. So he says in verse 5, For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. So here he's referring to holy women. And who's he have in mind? Well, we could... Say Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah. These were not sinless women. They had their issues. But in general, they had a faith in God. They sought to live obediently to the Lord. They were described as holy women who had a hope in God. And when Peter speaks of this concept of hope, he he normally has in mind the ultimate hope of glory. So that these godly women, regardless of their circumstances, regardless of the challenges and the difficulties they had in life, they had their hope in God. That ultimately they would be with Him forever and ever. And they used to adorn themselves, again with a gentle and quiet spirit, being submissive to their own husbands as well. And then in verse... Six, he says, just as Sarah, now he gives a specific example, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, 
And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any, any fear. So Sarah now is just an example. And what Peter uh, emphasizes is that she obeyed Abraham. She certainly contributed a lot of information and, and uh, got her way at times when it wasn't good necessarily, but she was, certainly was a, a, assertive in, in some times of her life. But she obeyed Abraham and called him Lord. And this uh, notice it's a it's a lowercase L. It's not a capital L, Lord. She's not calling him Lord God Almighty or anything like that. But it's a term of respect back then. Uh, the word kurios, which is the word Lord here, is translated in the New Testament as Sir. So it's just a term of respect. And so what Peter is doing is he's parading Sarah before their eyes, saying, "Look." She respected and obeyed her husband. And if you do the same thing, then you'll be her children. So you're in good standing uh, with Sarah. So the word, uh, again, to, to these Christian women is just to be respectful. Even if he's an unbeliever, to be respectful to them, to try to honor them, to be submissive to them. Yes, contribute. You, you have all this to contribute, your own ideas, your own thoughts, but you're in a dangerous position with the unbeliever given the culture of the day. If you don't abide and live by His God, then there could be a lot of abuse coming your way. So be wise. Let your life be the more powerful witness if your words are beginning to become an irritant. And let Him observe your godliness, the changes of Christ in your life. And by God's grace, He may come to faith. Do what is right in God's eyes. Don't be frightened by any fear. Don't fear man. Fear God. Hope in God. Trust in the Lord. And He will honor you and bless you. So in conclusion, the Christian home is to be a reflection of Christ's relationship to the church. As the church submits to Christ, so wives are to submit to their husband. And as Christ loves His bride, the church, so husbands are to love their wives and honor them. And we will consider the husband's role in all of this next week, Lord willing. And I'll also try to answer the question, why do the husbands only get one verse and the wives get six? So you can think about that and I'll give you my two cents worth on it, Lord willing, next time. So these are principles that please God, they honor God, and may the Lord give grace that we might uh, conform our lives to His pattern and His Word and receive His blessing for our obedience. So let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do uh, thank You, Lord, for these words that certainly are opposed uh, much within our own culture and our own society. But give us wisdom in applying these and understanding in each individual marriage, Lord. May these truths and principles be lived out in a way that will honor You. 
may you give the grace to both husbands and wives that our marriages might be a testimony to the goodness and the beauty and the blessing of knowing Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. Lord, the the world is full of opposition. The world is full of a lot of anarchy and rebellion. But may within the church there be this beautiful, submissive spirit in these various relationships because we see it as Your will. And may Christ again be uplifted and glorified in all of this. For we ask it in His name. Amen.